This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Hello, everybody. I am excited to have Wayne Lee on the show today. He is the professor of design and engineering at Georgia Tech, one of the best tech schools in the country and obviously the world. Uh, also spent some time at the Stanford D School, has been doing private consulting, has worked with companies like Volkswagen and several others. So I'm really eager to hear what he's got to say about design uh, and, and what he sees in the world. Wayne, how are you, man? Good to have you on the show. I'm doing great, Jay. Uh, great to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So what are you seeing? What are you working on today? What are you seeing at the school? What are you excited about? Yeah, so well, there are a lot of projects that we're doing um, at Georgia Tech. Um, I've got a couple of really interesting projects that are going on. Um, we have a, we, we teach over 20 classes in, in the design block, uh, which is our kind of multidisciplinary design center at, at Georgia Tech. And uh, one class is our, our VIP course where we're doing community engagement. Uh, and we look at kind of democratizing design, like bringing design out, participating with the community mm-hmm. In the local community and we're working on a couple of projects that deal with kind of uh, plastics recycling and waterways so that's really exciting to to engage with the community and work with those types of things um uh we've got a capstone project which are senior design students and engineering students in the um under, undergraduate area and we're doing everything from bio-inspired cheerleading shoes for nike and the bio and the um, center for bio-inspired design at tech all the way down to corporate projects for uh, for Verizon uh, Verizon Connect. So, a lot of really cool things that are going on. Yeah, and one of the things that's always been intriguing to me about Georgia Tech is is how they bring in uh, corporate projects and how they commu- uh, uh, collaborate with the private sector mm-hmm. and really get their students involved in real world projects. So, one of the things that I was interested to talk to you about is kind of that bridge between academia and, you know, and, and enterprise. And what do you see? And I'll first put a backdrop of like, you know, the Stanford D school, for those of you who don't know, is, is partially where design thinking came from. So all of you design thinking advocates, you know, Wayne's pretty well versed in that. Uh, so how do you bridging academia and enterprise, how do you think about measuring the effectiveness of design and the value of design in these organizations? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, so let, let me, I can give a little backstory and then launch into that, an, that answer, Jay. Yeah, go for it. So yeah, as far as like backstory, right. Um, I was in graduate school at Stanford University um, in the, in the program in design over there. Uh, I think they call it design impact now, but it, uh, back then it was called product design or joint program and product design. And we were the founding class of what is now known as the Stanford D school, right? We were the ones kind of helping out with the curriculum and, 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 and kind of, you know, basically helping to kind of, imagine what that was. And you're right, it is partially created at Stanford, as well as the Hasso Plotner Institute and IDEO Product Development, right? So those kind of three air, those three groups were the ones that really kind of crystallized design thinking mm-hmm. uh, on the West Coast. And I used to work at IDEO Product Development. So um, it, that's kind of where the design consulting had first started for me personally in this career. So, you know, when we imagined that idea, what, what people know as design thinking, I mean, we were, we were looking at, you know, wh- how how do, how do businesses innovate, right? And then how do you apply some of the, that radical collaboration 
right? Where really innovative businesses and uh, um, combine disciplines in a way that is that is fluid, seamless, and nimble, right? That was kind of that 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 nugget, right? And then applying that in an academic setting was where 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 the D school was going to go. So part of that is kind of we know we kind of we know it in you know uh, we kind of know it in, in our hearts, right? When when diverse people who have all have different expertises work really well together, right? They, they, they work in a way that in a culture of trust and creativity and empowerment, mm -hmm. cool mm -hmm. things happen, right? So that's kind of like the, if you put the, put the 20,000 foot view, right? That is kind of the nugget, right? I mean, the design thinking Venn diagram, if you guys see about it, right? Is, you know, there's, there's both, there's business viability, there's engineering or technology feasibility, and then there's the aesthetic, the human, the human aspects of it, right? So the desirability, the usability. Mm -hmm. When you combine all three together, that's the design innovation, right? So if we take that as the lens of that's what design thinking kind of, you know, encompassed. And in an academic structure, obviously the departments of technology, business, humanities exist in a university structure. So that's kind of that idea of how D-School was founded, right? So if you think about that and the bridge, Right then, the bridge is interesting because you know it's it, it comes down to do businesses and universities together understand that the ability to combine those disciplines or those areas, right, and how disciplines fit into that, right? Um, somebody might say, "Well, you know, I teach French. How's how's how does French fit into that, right? You know, but you know, it's it's a foreign language, and that's within the humanities." And if you're thinking about, you know, humanizing things, how do how does French culture look at something versus how does English culture look at something, right? Mm -hmm. and so there, there's every discipline has something to contribute into that kind of framework. So that's the that's the interesting thing about that. Um, now the question now we can launch the answer to your question, which is, you know, what what's what's effective what's effective about it? What's the bridge about it? And I would say in any organization, regardless of whether you're an academic or you're in a corporate setting. The question really is how well do your individual, you know, if you're in a, if a corporation that's in, you know, usually in a department uh, or a college that's in a unit, right? You know, uh, university has several colleges and then several schools in that, you know, corporations, obviously you got your departments and then um, and, and whatnot. So um, how well do the units cross fertilize ideas? How well do they work together? Mm -hmm. um, how well do they empower and trust each other? If they don't, right, you've got a cultural problem in your organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you, you're going down this path. We actually just recorded a podcast and released an, an article about that very thing, about how does that collaboration work, not just across departments, but across different types of people, different personalities, different backgrounds. Yeah. And when you work in a, in a Socratic culture where you're trying to find the best idea, and it's not judgmental about where the idea came from, or who had the idea or any of that. You're trying to discover what we collectively know together instead of what we all agree on. That's where the magic happens. Yeah, no, you, 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 yeah, you nailed it on the head. The only thing I, I would add to that is you're, I mean, you're right. It's a Socratic culture of, you know, what is the best, you know, and again, best is subjective because you have to frame it against the customer, right? But what is the best solution or service or, you know, or, you know, I would, I, when I use product, I use product very liberally, you know, it's a product of your imagination. So it can be software. It can be a B2B interface. It can be a play, a public policy, a consumer good, you know, whatever. So I, when I say product, I say really, I mean it very broadly. Right. So, 
But whenever you're coming with a product or a service, right? You know, any product of your imagination, what's the best, what is the most effective kind of solution for that customer requirement or customer need or that context? You know, it, the only thing I would add to that is it's not just about how well, you, like you said, kind of the teams and how they kind of relate. It's also mindsets, right? Like, oh, you know, totally. if, if you're talking about the neurosciences, right? You know, some mindsets are more like if you're, you know, again, uh, this is that, that kind of, de- you know, design thinking kind of ideas. Like if, you, if you're looking at technology feasibility, an engineering mindset may be to deduce, right? To deduct, like it's, a, it's an analytical mindset. It's a critical mindset. That's, you know, the critical thinking part of it. So they'll go, well, what's the best technology that's feasible? Meaning it's, you know, it fits into the structure. I know I can produce it. I've got several outputs like, you know, feasibility, um, cost, volume, and strength. I'm going to deduce the best outcome for that, right? Based off these four inputs, mm-hmm. you know, feasibility and, you know, um, viability from a business standpoint may, may co- kind of straddle some of that where they'll go, what's the, what's the cheapest thing I can make? Right. And so that's also somewhat deductive. It's somewhat analytical. Um, but there are creative elements of business, obviously. And then in design, there's definitely creative elements. So the mindset of a designer is more associative. It's not deductive. It's creative. It's inductive, which means, you know, and this is where the tension comes in between different units. Right. Because a designer's mind or the way the discipline teaches it is for you to come up with many ideas from one idea. So if you say something like, OK, well, we need to create something that shelters someone from the rain. Right. Uh, an engineer might look at it and go, well, I know what that is. That's, you know, that's an umbrella. Boom. It's cheap. I know I can fabricate it done. Right. And so they just say it's an umbrella. Whereas mm-hmm. a designer may ask, well, okay, I, I, have to, I have to come up with a bunch of different ideas for how to protect someone from the rain. So I'm going to come up with a poncho. I'm going to come up with an umbrella. I'm going to come up with a newspaper. I'm going to come up with a brown paper bag. What about a bus shelter? What about an overhang? What about just running indoors? What about making, making, a, wep- uh, making a device that changes the weather? So you can see that's an associative technique in your mind, right? You're associating it with whatever you remember of the ways that you can remove rain from the equation. Right. So that's creative and inductive in mindset, in nature, right? Um, so the way we think about the, it is, is, is divergent thinking is so we want we want to have, or brainstorming is what most people call it, right? Yeah. Where we want yeah. to have as many ideas as possible. Possible. Yeah, exactly. So and that's in the design thinking process, right? That, like that's that's actually part of it. Like brainstorming yeah. came, you know, come from ideo. So, yep. um, so it, yeah, it's divergent versus convergent thinking, or exactly. inductive versus deductive reasoning, or critical versus creative thinking, right? So, and you can imagine how those different disciplines, those different departments, because they have people who study different things, and therefore they are bringing different aspects of their mind to the front, to the forefront. That that's where the creative tension is. That's where the tension is. So. How well, like I said, how well you manage that cultural attitude, right? So, you know, in your project management, do you allow space for creativity? Do you allow space for, you know, most people who are getting into implementation, like when you get to like, we got to release this tomorrow, they get into a super critical mindset. And that's okay, because probably when you need to release something, you probably need to be in a critical mindset. But at the beginning of the outset of a project, when you first start with a prompt, are you in a creative mindset? And the interesting thing about design thinking is it rapidly oscillates, it iterates between divergent and convergent thinking. Mm-hmm. So between cri- critical and creative thinking, right, you're, you're moving back and forth between, depending on what phase you're in. If yep, you're in an exactly. ideate phase, right, you're in a divergent phase, it's creative. If you're in a critical phase, a test or evaluate phase, it's critical. 
Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about it is when people misinterpret that or they are critical all the time. So you see it in a brainstorm. If someone's like, that's a stupid idea. And that's like one of the rules of brainstorming is deferred judgment. But somebody right. says that it right. shuts down the team immediately. Yep. And when that happens, you know, you realize that it's in the culture, right? They're, they're not, they don't advocate brainstorming as a true tool and they don't know the rules of brainstorming. So when that happens, it it's, you know, there's something in the organization, something in cultural that, that doesn't allow or doesn't reward employees or people in that organization, the, um, the creative, uh, the creative mindset. Right. So you, right. you're, you're really, yeah, you're really hitting on that is how well uh, an organization understands that when they do design thinking. Yeah. And so the funny thing is you're, the design thinking process is pretty well documented and there's tons of free resources out there for yeah. uh, how to understand it and implement it. But ultimately people forget that underlying um, kind of cultural thing about, we have to go into this phase of work in a creative or a, you know, a much more expansive mindset. And then we're going to come back and do all of that critical thinking and that deductive stuff where we are eliminating ideas that we think are not uh, feasible for whatever reason, or we're eliminating things that we know are just simply not possible yet. Right. Um, and, and people forget that these, these things happen in loops, right? You go through, it's a cyclical process. Right. And right. eventually sure. you narrow in to the thing which has the most potential for being successful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and I think the fun thing about adding to that, just if I build on that a little bit, is that, you know, people go, well, is this just endless loops? And you're like, no, no. I mean, the, the interesting thing about this is remember that, you know, it, it isn't just this, it isn't just dogmatically following a, you know, a, a, a set of phases, right? And they're like, okay, we're going this phase now. And we're going to go in this phase now. And then we're going to go in this phase now, right? When people start getting into that, they, they start losing how fluid, right? Part of that design process is you have to feel comfortable moving backwards. You have mm-hmm. to feel comfortable skipping stages. Mm-hmm. And, and it isn't just dogmatically, I'm going to run through this loop and just do this phase over and over and over again. Um, you know, part of that is it's set up in a way that you're, when you're evaluating, you're about, you can't lose the human frame. Right. And part of that people like, you know, people want to be able to understand people need structure, you know, to, to, to sometimes to understand what they're doing. So that's understandable. And one of the things about design thinking is you, and and just entrepreneurship in general, um, people have mentioned, you know, this is also well documented is people have to be comfortable with ambiguity, especially early in the stages, uh, early in a, in project management, project development. Right. It's like, you have to be comfortable that you don't know anything. Right. Um, You don't know who the customer is. You don't know what the market is. You don't know how successful you'll be about it. You don't know, if you're if the thing you create is truly effective or really resonates with the customer, so all those things that are early, th- those and those things make people nervous, <laughs> right? Because yeah, that's where people get heartburn. Know, people get heartburn because they're like, oh man, we are in such trouble, right? Good design thinkers relish that moment because that's where they thrive is that level of ambiguity, right? right? right. Because they look at it as an opportunity to learn. So the idea it's not about it's not about being wrong and, and then wasting money, right? Some people always frame it as, well, we failed this, so we've had to start over and therefore it's a horrible return. But instead you have to look at it as, this is time and money spent on learning what will ultimately be successful. If you do that early in the process, right? Where when the cost of prototyping is cheap, right? You, you have to glorify those mistakes, right? Um, 
you know, the ideal mantra is fail early, fail often in order to succeed sooner. Right. And uh, remember that in order to succeed sooner is in the back there, right? A lot of people just go fail or fail often. They don't really know what that means, right? Um, the, the, the idea is you're learning about your, your, your create, using a creative process to create an instantiation of a solution, not in order to sell it, but in order to learn about people's attitudes, beliefs, and preferences about that subject. Yeah, yeah to understand its yeah. value. Yeah. You're and not trying to actually sell it yet. You're just trying to understand whether or not it's valuable to Correct. The people whose problems you're trying to solve. Correct. Exactly. So that human frame of this whole kind of, like you said, this kind of whole, you know, you, divergent, convergent, repeat, repeat, repeat. Listen, you, you, well, the only thing you don't want to, you want to remember to add on there is just say, yeah, we diverge in order to come up with different ideas. We're basically making assumptions about what we think we know the customer wants. And then we right. prototype and make it. And then we go test it. And now that testing, yeah, it's critical in the sense that you can learn what people prefer and therefore you're reducing the inputs, but it's also creative in the sense that you learn something new about someone that you didn't think you even knew before. That's the interesting thing about the engagement. It's right. That evaluation process can be both critical and creative, right? Especially if you're oh, learning absolutely. about new things, right? So, right. you know, that's where that challenging the assumptions part where you're like, you know, if, again, if you dogmatically stick to what you think you know, you'll walk down the path all the way to production and be wrong. Right. Whereas if you're humble enough and empathetic enough to say, okay, I was way off base. I'm going to fail early in order to succeed sooner. That means that I'm going to learn truly what customers want or truly learn what, what people, um, you know, what resonates with people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. by doing so, yeah, you'll be that positioned that much better for when you do make the final product. Prototyping is um, learning by doing, learning by making. It's not learn. It's not making to sell, right? That's, I find sometimes entrepreneurs think that they want to make the final product right away and they, they confuse their making process with their production process. And that's a little bit different, right? Exactly. Well, it's, it's kind of like when we were kids playing in the sandbox or you, know, you had a bunch of Lego or whatever, like you'd put stuff together and try it to see if it worked and then you'd do whatever you wanted to do and it would break and you'd go back and you'd build it a slightly different way and you'd try yep. the thing again, and it would break and you'd build it a slightly different way until you achieved what you wanted to. It's the same concept. Yeah. Another way I like to think about, you said something really important is that people like structure and yeah. that ambiguity uh, that's early on in, in the kind of the planning and in uh, design phase makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And I think a sports metaphor can be helpful. So if we think about your you know, American football, NFL, college football game, you know, you've got structure, you've got four quarters, you've got a field, you've got some rules, you've got a clock, you've got structure to operate within. Right. And everyone knows what the goal is. You score more points than the other team. That's pretty easy. The <laughs> nuance and the value of design, you think about uh, you know, Nick Saban or you know, any of the, 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 the premier coaches, right? Andy Reid in the NFL, you know, uh, Belichick, whatever you think of these people, you can't dispute their success. The value of design and of a good design team is knowing what to do with the playbook in the context right. of that structure. Yep. Sure. So you can't use the same playbook every week and expect to win. You can't use the same playbook every time, every, every play and, and expect to win. You have to yeah. know, you have to evaluate what's happening on the field which is going out and testing things with your customers. You have to go back to your playbook and then understand like, what do, what were you going to do next? That right. is going to give us the greatest chance of success. 
collectively right. as a team, we're going to agree to do that thing that we're going to go test it. We're going to try that on second down. Oops, that didn't work. So we're going to try something a little bit different on third down. Did that work? Okay, good. And if you get good at that, if you get good at that process of evaluating the world in front of you, making a decision on what to do next and testing that idea play by play, you'll be uh, much, much more likely to succeed and win the Super Bowl. Yeah, no, Jay, I mean, that's, that's a great, that's very apt. That's a great metaphor. I mean, I, the only one I would even think about analogous would be improvisation, right? Like if you think about improv, improv either comedy or music, there are certain rules, right? There are certain rules of improv. Like, you, you know, yeah, sure. you, you've got, you've got in music, you've got beat, you can play around the beat, but there is a beat. This is four, four time. You can't just switch into waltz beat right away. Right. Right. Or, you know, or, or improv comedy, right? There are certain rules, right? Just like there are brainstorming rules. There are rules in improv, you know, you're like, you know, trust each other, support each other, right? Go for a wild idea. Like those are rules within a certain setup that allows you to, allows the entire diversity of the team to generate a lot of ideas, right? So yeah, absolutely. It is, and this is the interesting thing, right? For the people who love structure, right? And I, I would say, if you, you know, if you think about improv, we, you can, there's so many permutations around those rules. And if we go and we use your football analogy, it's the same thing. If you only have one play on first down, like if you're like, okay, we're going to brainstorm for ideation. Is that the only thing you know about how to ideate? Right. If that's the only tool you've got, if you have one play in this down, right? So, you know, if, if you, you have different plays for first down, second down, third down, and fourth down, just like you have different plays for, you know, the empathy, um, you know, empathy mode, the define phase, the ideate phase, the prototype phase, and the test phase. So, you know, if you only have one play, you know, of course, it's going to feel really linear because you didn't really have, you're not really reading the field in front of you. You're like, well, I got one play. So right. are there any other ways that you can get creative? Like that's, that, this is like always the interesting thing because, you know, when somebody goes, oh yeah, I know design thinking. And you're like, okay, great. And they, you know, they took a class or something like that and that's fine. Um, and then they go, but help me because, you know, I'm, I'm in this thing and, and I know I need to be creative right now, but all, all we do is brainstorm. I'm like, well, okay, are there, do you have any other, 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 other things at your disposal for how do you can encourage creativity in your team? And the, and the question there is, you know, do they have more than one design method? We'll call those methods, right? Like there's sure. strategy and then there's tactics. So overall, the process is a strategy. There are tactics within the within the within the strategy. So, yeah, I mean, if you're like we're in a creative phase, you're like, well, how, how you know how are you getting your team creative, right? And 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 that's that that's the interesting thing, right? There's more than one way to test. There's more than one way to 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 refine, right? So you know, there's one more than one way to con- get feedback. Right. So like if you need to test a prototype, there are both quantitative ways like a marketing survey and qualitative ways like a focus group. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's more than one method to do everything within that. And like you said. Right. So that's the interesting thing is, can you read the field in front of you and go, you know what? Our second down was horrible. We actually have to go back to first down plays. So we have to actually go backwards. Right. I mean, the, 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 the idea that the design process is linear is not. It is that people say it's cyclical. But they also don't realize that cyclical means you can go in both directions and you can jump across the circle. So right. that's the interesting thing, right? People sometimes they get they get a little bit too they get a little bit too um, ingrained with it's a forward circle where you have to go. Well, no, wait, maybe we just didn't ideate enough. We need to take a step back. I know I know it's painful, but let's take a step back and let's spend one more week being creative because we just didn't come up with enough stuff, right? Right. Um, you know so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you can choose how you deploy the assets that you have available to you. Right. So you might substitute players, you might substitute tactics. You might think about, you know, you might pull a trick play every once in a while. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to think about the way that we go about the process of design. 
Yeah. And to me, in, in, in my experience, the real value of a great design team and a great design process is, is that head coach is that coaching staff, I should say, and you know, sure. the players on the field, like it's not just one person, it's all of those things working together as a unit to generate results. And that can be hard yeah. to quantify. And a lot of people ask about, well, what is the ROI of design? If we're going to spend a half million dollars on this, how do we know we're going to make 750,000 back? Well, yeah. you know, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to quantify like that, but like you don't ask your legal team, like if we're going to spend half million dollars on legal expenses, how are we going to get $750,000 back? Right. Like you just know that there's some intrinsic value there. And so companies yeah. need to get to the point where they understand that there's some magic happening and that you can't always put it in a spreadsheet, but you can definitely measure the results of the companies who do it well versus the results of the companies who don't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and, and this is, you're right, Jay. I, I like that. <laughs> I'm just kind of chuckling to myself. I like the legal thing. It's like, how do you put an ROI on a legal department? Right. I mean, it, it saves you when you're in litigation. Right. So, I mean, I, I would say, you know, and listen, I, I've got maybe personal anecdotes, right? I mean, I know that I've worked for companies and, and done things using my design thinking process that have made the companies a, a lot, right? So, you know, I, I, I have, you know, I have seen, I've, as far as examples, right? Again, this is, this is always tricky, right? Because I can understand a, a, a COO going, well, if I'm going to invest this much in an innovation, you know, thing. One thing I, I will caution people about, because I, you see that, right? Like, oh, we, we, we have an innovation. We, we, we spent $20 million on innovation center. And nothing happened. And then again, <laughs> it comes back down, you know, and it comes back down to, well, hold on a second. What did you do with that $20 million, right? And then right. this is always fun because sometimes I see this, like I see this as a consultant. I see it, at, you know, dissecting companies either post-mortem or at the beginning, right? When they're like, we don't want to do what they did because they just wasted $20 million. Part of it is like we talked about before was cultural. You know, if, if the innovation center is like, all right, we made $20 million. And so we just spent a whole bunch of money building this whole new building with white walls. And we saw like, we, we, you know, we did some kind of research and saw that IDEO uses, you know, whiteboards everywhere and there's post-it notes everywhere. And, you know, people have beanbag chairs and all this stuff and free coffee. And so we did all that and nothing innovative. Like, well, that's because you didn't change the culture, right? You set up a space and space can affect culture. But you really didn't address the root problem, which is your culture is too, too at, at odds with each other. They don't want to collaborate. So how are you actually going to change that? So spend $20 million on actually changing the organizational's culture rather than just changing the blinds, right? So that's, that's, that's one way I would look at it. Um, and of course, the, you know, I, I have had hands in looking at innovation centers and have found successes, right? It depends on how you execute on that, right? If you're able to actually change the culture and of course money always helps change the culture if, if you one success story can quickly change culture if you actually do it right right so the one i'm thinking of is i remember reading an article and i think um i can't remember exactly what what it was i think it was innovation by design uh, uh magazine is uh, like around october is i think it's like like 2017 and they said into it use design thinking to boost sales by 10 million dollars in one year right um, I've heard other anecdotal stories about, you know, a construction company who spent maybe uh, a quarter million dollars with a return of maybe uh, $10 million in one year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so th- those types of things, if, if you think about it, you're looking at 10x, 40x return, if you know how to do it, like if, it, if you do it well, and I'm sure that's anecdotal, otherwise they wouldn't have put it in a story. But, um, but you know, even me personally, I, I know I've t- taken nothing right? With just a human requirement 
and using a design thinking process, design one product that has generated $18 million in one year. So I know I, can, I know it can be done, right? So um, we've done cost operations, right? Uh, I used to work, so besides IDEO product development, uh, you know, I worked in the automotive industry, designing cars for two major car companies, and then housewares for a major um, home furnishing company, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, for the automotive one, like using design thinking, again, encouraging cross-collaboration between engineering, manufacturing, and design. That's not easy because that's three different buildings, mm-hmm. maybe in two or three different countries. How well you're actually able to communicate and translate your requirements and negotiate back and forth between these dis- different disciplines. When we were tasked with designing a new component, a uh, major interior component, um, you know, we're, we, we're saving on the orders of tens of millions of dollars in cost that wasn't there, that most people didn't even see. They didn't even know it was there. Mm-hmm. And then, but by actually talking to the right people, the suppliers, the manufacturing, the designers, the engineers, to, and really trying to understand what their requirements were, to, you know, and informing that to the design department, the design department was actually designing a new product, a brand new product, right? A brand new product that obsoleted, I would say 40 existing products. So if you can consolidate 40 products into one product that does the same thing, Imagine your price volume curve there, mm-hmm. right? That, that simplification is a huge cost reduction because you've eliminated a huge amount of waste in your company, but yep. only because you've actually gone out to find and negotiate what those requirements were from each department, right? right. The, that, that's, that's the question, right? Do you have the incentive to do that? Do you want to take that upon yourself? Uh, is it in your culture to want to work with people in the other aisle? and try to find the path that works for both of you well, right? So, you know, my, my, my rule is, you know, if you give me 10, I'll give you 90. So that's the mindset, right? It, it's, it's like, I'm willing to negotiate with you. I just want to understand what you want. And if you're willing to even budge even 10%, I'll give you 90, more than 90% of what you want. And mm-hmm. if you say that to every single group, then you'll probably begin to find out what is in their, fr- what is in their mindset what they what do they find most dear to them what do they find where are they easy to jettison and where are they where are they flexible and those three things like you know what are you, what, what's critical what's non-essential what's flexible and by doing that with every single department you're in and then figuring it out right if your design department knows how to do that and if your management knows how to do that then good things happen yeah yeah and, and to bring that example kind of back to digital if yeah. If your design team is talking with your support team, who is talking with your finance team, who is talking with you know, these other teams, and they're figuring yeah. out, it's like, so for example, we're spending, you know, say 13% of our customer support effort on this one feature. Well, if we focus on making that easier to use by talking to customers, understanding why they're getting stuck on it, then we can save a significant amount in our support costs. Yeah. Um, if we are spending X amount on server infrastructure because our databases are working super hard, well, maybe we need to think about how to simplify something so that we can save on our server infrastructure costs. So thinking about things across those organizational boundaries and, and really looking at how do we deliver this product in a way that is efficient, that's still capturing the, the most value for the organization while providing the most value to the customer, you're going to see gains. You're going to see 
uh, an increase in profits or an increase in revenue, or you're going to see a decrease in costs. And all of that's going to lead to a greater profit margin, which drives profitability for the organization. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. I mean, it, I can tell you it's, it is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if you think about it, like, you know, think about it this way, what, 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 what is interesting about technology, especially in, like you said, if you're for, if you're in a financial services or software environment, right, is it, it's understanding the appropriate level of technology and curating it relative to the user's requirements and the user's needs. If you have no idea what the user's needs are, then the technology runs rampant. Like, oh, we could do this. We could add exactly. this, we could add this. <laughs> and then now your database has like 60 features you don't need, right? right? And then the cost, the support cost of being able to do that. When if you actually just asked what the customer really wanted in that database, well, I wouldn't have eight pieces of information that I really need. You're like, oh, well then why do we have a you know SQL database that tracks 20 different data types when we only need eight, right? right. Like at, at the end of the day, or is there even a more nimble or lighter piece of, of, of database that you can actually now, maybe you make knowing what you know, right? Or if you know if the UX team actually talks to the coding team, you know, and they're really in lockstep, you're like, well, there's this new information type. My, my financial, you know, my customer who deals with finances, you know, needs an augmented reality financial type. Like they could, what they would be really cool is if they were wearing glasses and they go shopping and if they hover on, like if they look at an item, like, ooh, that's nice. And then an augmented reality field pops up and goes, yeah, that's too expensive. You can't afford that. And, and so I need a new data type of, you know, passion for purchase versus, um, you know, affordability. Right. right. It basically right. just gives you a that's thumbs relevant up thumbs to down. the customer. Right. That's relevant to the customer. Like that's an augmented, no, so now it's an augmented reality, you know, price versus um, revenue data type. Let's just make that up. We'll call it. Right. And for shortness, let's just call it ooh. It's the ooh factor. So now <laughs> yeah. you have the ooh factor in your database. Now there's no database that currently exists that has that data type. But that's what the customer wants. Now all of a sudden, the, fun, the coding group has an incentive to develop a new technology that's the ooh factor database and they jettison the SQL database they didn't ever use, that they never really needed. Because the other seven data types are totally normal and they're like published libraries that are all over the place so they can do that. Now you got something patentable, now you got something protectable and the, the human requirements drive the technology creation, right? That's where the secret sauce is because if you don't do that, then you're just using technology that everybody else uses. So in that sense, human-centered technology development right? Gives you that competitive advantage, but only if the design and marketing team talk to the coding team about what's technically feasible, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the always interesting thing, right? Because when the technologists drive it necessarily, we're like, oh, I can create this feature. I can create this feature that, you know, like that's great. Um, but it'd be better for the, have that technologist be in the room with the UX and marketing team. So they're not, I mean, because a technologist wants to be creative too. That's why they're showing you all those features. Like, oh, look what I can do with this technology. They're, they're enchanted with the technology and what it can do. But what's interesting is get them enchanted about the person and what they want, because then they'll exactly. modify the technology to do what that is. And that's, exactly. that again, is that how well in your organization does the culture of design thinking permeate it? Yep. An engineer wants to be creative. Like, they, they don't, don't get me wrong. The, you know, the discipline itself is a little bit more critical and analytical in coursework, like there is no engineering creativity 101 in most programs, right? Um, and, um, but it, it is an interesting thing about if you can harness their want to be creative and put them in front of customers, or at least somehow, you know, virtually do so, um, then yeah, exactly. You, you, you can start creating technology that is actually 
focused and effective because ultimately if you have the ooh factor and no one else's, you've got, you've got to create a uh, competitive advantage. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so last thing to touch on. So we've done some research and other companies or, or organizations have done a bunch of research around this, around um, once a mature or semi-mature product um, has been you know, in the market for a while, yeah. we find that up to like 75% of that product is rarely or never used by its customers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right. It's the pair two principle, right? So yeah, 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 yeah. 20, 20 ish percent of stuff. Right. Uh, and, and in the article that we published uh, relatively recently, it was you know, 12% of stuff is frequently used, 8% yeah. is sometimes used, 56% yeah. rarely used, and 24% never used. Wow. So that is an indication that teams aren't getting this right yet. Right. No, and, right? and it's funny. Yeah, you're, no, you're right. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the Pareto principle. I didn't realize it was broken down that specifically i mean i i always just remember it just in, inherently as feature creep right it's like yeah of course pe of course pe people just people would need something when they buy something they needed to do four to eight things really darn well and then of course once <laughs> exactly. the feature creep starts happening like nobody utilizes it because it's like well you know that that that, that doesn't go back to understanding what people actually need right it exactly. just goes back to exactly. technology running amok right so yeah it is that I never heard it break down exactly that specifically. Well, cool. so th this is the results. Of, <laughs> this is the results of one group of studies, right? So okay. you know, your your mileage may vary, but the point is, you know, exactly to what you were saying is, you know, if if an engineer is left to their own devices, they're going to iterate on their tools and they're right. going to iterate on what they know. They're not going to go out and find uh, customer-driven reasons to do things. So right. by staying focused on the customer, we can essentially raise the amount of the applications we deploy that's used by those customers and not have all of this, this, this bloat and the technical debt that comes with it. Because think right. about if your application, if 70% of your app is not really used, it's not providing value to anyone, what it is doing is slowing down the development and the, and the maturation of the other 20 to 30%. You That's can't right. do certain things. You can't make certain things better because you're dragging this anchor of all this stuff nobody uses along with you. And so if you invest in discovering what that is, really understanding the customers and yeah. what they're actually using, what they're getting value from, you can shed the weight of all that old technology. And that in and of itself is a cost savings and in a form of ROI. Yeah. No, like, yeah, I mean, cost savings and, 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 like I mentioned in the previous automotive example, the reduction of your product line into something that where you can consolidate it, right? Then yep. you get the benefits of the efficiencies of scale. Uh, and you're absolutely right. I mean, this comes, this is one of those founding principles I learned, you know, Dave Patnay's class, the need finding class at Stanford is the same one. It was basically to say, if you focus on customer needs, the needs are verbs, right? If you focus on the exactly. technology, the technology is a solution. So if you say, you know, I, you know, I need to build a birdhouse. Right. Then, or, or, you know, or I need to, I need to put two pieces of wood together. Right. Cause I'm building a birdhouse and that's the need. That's the human need, right? Some, some father wants to create a tree house or a birdhouse for their son or daughter. Okay. How are we going to do that? Right. So now you can come up with all these different things, right. At, you know, you have a hammer, you have wood glue, you have, you know, you have dovetail joinery, you've got screws, fasteners, you know, a list goes on and on and on and on L brackets, et cetera, et cetera. If your if your business model is I'm gonna uh, we're the we're the company that teaches you how to build or that facilitates building, you've got a you've got an endless business model that is timeless. Mm -hmm. If you're a hammer company, 
like if, if, if you know you know how creative culture or how innovative a company is if they tell if they say hi we're company xx we're a yy company so you're like we're the smith company we're a ladder company you're like well all right you're you're done because once you build a ladder you're all you're gonna do is like you said it's just evolve your tools you're gonna make the, t- the ladder slightly taller the next year you're gonna make it pink you're gonna make it slightly light less weight it's still a ladder Right. If you're, you know, if, but if you're the build a birdhouse company, right, then all, or the, the building things company, then you, you allow yourself the ability to go, okay, we're not just a hammer company. Next year, we found out wood glue is better, or we found out that, you know, a, a nail gun is quicker, or we found, you know, or, or we found out one where the, the wood is, is, is silly putty and it just glues itself together. Right. right. That's the interesting thing, right? Because at a certain point, you're going to jettison the old technology when a newer technology obsoletes it. But right. if you only evolve the old technology, you'll you'll be obs- you will be the one be obsoleted by another company that actually understands the human need, right? Yeah. It's so, that old thing about people don't buy drills, they buy holes. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not the tool, it's the outcome the tool helps you achieve. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's that that's that's the jobs to be done framework. So yep, exactly. yeah, I mean if you think about verbs and, and I always just say it's need finding. And again, everybody has kind of a different idea of there are different people who have, have, have published different, um, you know, books on these things or, 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 or articles on these things. But yeah, it's, it's, what is the human need? What is the human requirement here in the frame of a verb, right? Because if it is, what are you trying to accomplish? And if you can frame it as a verb, then that actually makes it timeless, right? That makes it future-proof because mm-hmm. you actually understand what humans require. You don't, you, you understand that humans have needs. They don't have solutions. They don't have things, Right. They, they need to get things done in that sense. Right. So, right. Um, so yeah, I mean, having, having your technologists understand that, that that's how to look for needs, look for verbs, don't look for solutions. Then that that's the one thing that gets them into a design thinking, a design mindset. Yeah. Yeah, man, we could talk about this stuff probably for days, but I think that's a pretty good place to kind of wrap things up for, for, sure. for this time. Yeah. Uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for making some time to do it. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, um, so there are a couple different ways. Uh, obviously, email's just fine. Uh, it's just my name, Wayne.Lee, Lee spelled L-I, at design.gatech.edu. Um, our website is design block. That's design B L O C no K at the end. Um, designblock.gotech.edu. Um, and there's contact information there as well. So a web link to show you kind of what our design center does. Um, and then of course my personal email, if, if you wanted to reach out, be more than happy to, uh, uh, to answer questions. Or if people have any comments about the, about the show today. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we'll link all that stuff up in the show notes again, Wayne, pleasure to chat with you. Um, looking forward to next time. And as the, all this COVID stuff starts to wind down, I'd love to get together for some coffee. Sounds great, Jay. Likewise, it's been a wonderful uh, conversation. My pleasure. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at ninelabs.com. 
Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.